It's Monday, July 26th, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is Yeri Jero, and welcome to Empire Jeopardy, the web's most popular game show. I'm your host and witness as the Empire winds itself up and just keeps unwinding. All three contestants are back from last week. He's an urban vertical farmer from Battered Washington and winner of this year's Golden Trellis Award. Meet Jack Browndart. What's the Golden Trellis, Jack? Uh, it's the Oscar of vertical permaculture, Yeri. I won it for growing 380 pounds of Brussels sprouts up the elevator shaft of an abandoned factory. I brought some for you. Thanks a bushel, Jack. He was the commander of former intelligence at CINCOM Dreadsent AFPAC in Hintsville, Arkansas. But he's been picked to head the unmanned manpower center at the Drone Alone Air Force Base on Growler Island, Washington. Meet Colonel Buda Braunschweig. Uh, that's quite a promotion they gave you, Colonel. You know, once I heard about my 3D PowerPoint... And happy. <laughs> she was a loan denier for Windjammer Gorgle in Jockey Shorts, Illinois, until they kicked her upstairs to run the whole loan denial division in their Tipping Point Washington headquarters. Meet Swindaloo Zimmer. Happy about the transfer, Swindaloo? Working for Windjammer Gorgle is the best life sentence in the business, Mr. Yarrow. Well, the rules are as simple as our returning contestants. Win two and we talk, lose two and you walk. Tie it up and we come back for more. Okay, here we go. Four out of every five. What is the percentage of packaged foods that contain empty calories? What is the percentage of civilians collateralized by a predator-launched Hellfire missile? Yeah. What is the percentage of the unemployed turned away from every job opening? Right you are, Swindaloo. A lot of them sleep outside my office. Well, let's go again. They're invisible, hard to catch, and worth $100 billion. What's left of the salmon in Alaska? Who are all the wealthy deadbeats who walked on their mortgages? Who are the 100 Al-Qaeda bums still operating in Afghanistan? Bingo, Butta! <laughs> you can't fight them, you can't drone them. So here we are, Swindaloo and Butta, we could talk. Okay. Jack, you're one wrong answer away from walking. Hey, don't sell my Birkenstock short, Yari. Here it is, last one. A clueless barfly with delusions of grandeur. Who is John Bomer? Right on, Swindaloo. It's John Bomer, the Sultan of Suntan. I speed dated him once. Five minutes was enough. And here's what you've won, Swindy. A million dollars worth of golden sacks of crap toxic derivatives. They're perfect for wallpapering your nest egg. A complete set of the president's heads in chocolate from the Franklin After Dinner Mint. Ooh, just in time for my book group. And... An all-expenses-paid weekend on Louisiana's Gas War Island Resort. Slip into your Hawaiian hazmat halter top, order up a couple of 30-weight mojitos on us, and chill out. Talk about a private beach, Swindy. You're the only living thing within 10 miles. I guess I could take off my top. Uh, not yet. This is Yeri Jero, host of Empire Jeopardy, reminding you that everybody else is just a failed attempt at being us. Oh my, in the heat of the summer, you've got radio-free Oz in your ears. Or, to our dear friends below the equator, in the cold of the winter, you've got radio-free Oz in your ears. I'm Peter Bergman, your host, our co-host, David Oz. Gosh, I'm glad I'm not in the middle there. It really sounds uncomfortable. We're all in the middle now. Oh, I guess we are. Hey, I don't know whether you've heard about uh, the overturning of the Stolen Valor Act or not. The First, the overturning yes. of the Stolen Valor Act. I think it How sounds sad like, or happy. No, it sounds like a novel to it, me. It does. The it's overturning kind of, of the, you know, I don't know. Tearing her bodice as they overturn her there, or him. There yeah. we are. Well, it happened in Colorado. It all happens <laughs> in Colorado, Dave. <laughs> a judge in Denver, I mean, this isn't somewhere up in the mountains. A judge in Denver uh, ruled that a federal law, <laughs> the Stolen Valor Act, uh, uh, making it illegal to lie about being a war hero is unconstitutional. Sounds unconstitutional to me. Because it violates free speech. You guessed it. The ruling, uh, made public a week or so ago, came in the case of uh, Mr. Strandhoff, a Colorado man who claimed he was a former Marine. Doesn't say he was running for the Senate, although why not, you know? Yeah. Uh, he was. He claimed he was a former Marine, was wounded in Iraq, received the Purple Heart and the Silver Star. 
The military had no record that he had served, and he was charged with violating the May of Music Please Maestro, the Stolen Valor Act. So it's constitutional to lie about your war record. In fact, it isn't even a lie. You don't have a war record, so you're not lying about it. You're creating it, right? Absolutely. Oh, well, I, I it think— It doesn't matter. You can fabulous it up any way you want. And here's the last line of this, because it's the I can't judge. Wait. Here it comes. Here comes the, the judge. judge dismissed the case saying the government had not shown that it has a compelling reason to restrict that type of statement. Absolutely. You know, I just t- today or this week, we're, we're, we've got the Daniel Ellsberg interview. Ooh. And he, I realized as I was talking with him, I thought I, I knew his biography. And all of a sudden I realized he was a Marine. He wasn't just a guy at the Rand Corporation flipping pages, figuring out that this doesn't work. He was on the ground, you know, as, as a Marine. And he said, you know, as a Marine, when I look at the whole thing happening in Afghanistan, I think of like putting 80 pounds on my back and with special scope sights and all that body armor, I can just feel their pain. Mm-hmm. So he ain't lying about nothing. And remember when uh, when this all started, you know, it was just some kids at Berkeley. Free speech. I seem to remember that. Free speech. Oh, that amendment to the Constitution. The gray lady about the new poor. I mean, this story brings back memories of the Great Depression. Not that I was born during or experienced the Great Depression, but my parents were Great Depression people, and they told me stories of it. And it seems to be returning, this systemic poor. In what was beginning to feel like a previous life, 49-year-old Israel Valle had earned $18 an hour as an executive assistant to a designer at a prominent fashion label. Now he was jobless and struggling to find work. He decided to invest in upgrading his skills. It was February of 2009, and the city workforce center in downtown Brooklyn was jammed with hundreds of people hungry for paychecks. His caseworker urged him to take advantage of classes financed by the federal government, which had increased its money for job training. Upgrade your skills, she consulted, then she could arrange job interviews. Sounds good. This is, uh, you know, standard middle-of-the-road, uh, get-trained-get-a-new-job thinking. And so for six weeks... Mr. Valle absorbed instruction, spreadsheets, and word processing. He tinkered with his resume. But the interviews his caseworker eventually arranged were for low-wage jobs, and they were mobbed by desperate applicants. Desperate applicants. More than a year later, Mr. Valle remains among the record 6.8 million Americans who have been officially jobless for six months or longer. He recently applied for welfare benefits. By no cause other than the fact that he is a victim, and I use that word accordingly, a victim of of structural unemployment. The market has been shattered, and there's no way using, you know, present nostrums to bring it back together. We need the new, the new deal. Training was fruitless, he said. I'm not seeing the benefits. Training for what? No one's hiring. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have enrolled in federally financed training programs in recent years only to remain out of work. That has intensified skepticism about training as a cure for unemployment. Mm -hmm. Even before the recession created the bleakest job market in more than a quarter century, quarter century, maybe half a century, job training was already producing disappointing results. A study conducted by the Labor Department tracking the experience of 160,000 laid-off workers in 12 states from mid-2003 to mid-2005, a time of economic expansion, boom, 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 everybody's working, found that those who went through training wound up earning little more than those who did not even three or four years later. A lot of work, not a lot of result. In the last 18 months, the Obama administration has embraced more promising approaches to training focused on faster-growing areas like renewable energy and healthcare. but most money has been directed to the same sorts of programs that in past years have largely failed to steer laid-off workers towards new careers, say experts, and now the number of job openings is vastly outnumbered by the people who are out of work. It's such an ugly situation that job training can't solve it, said Ross Eisenberry, a job training expert at the Economic Policy Institute. When you have five people unemployed for every vacancy, you can train all the people you want, and unfortunately, only one-fifth of the people will get hired. Training doesn't create jobs. A lot of the training programs that we have in this country were designed for a kind of quick turnaround economy, as opposed to the entrenched structural challenges of today, said labor economist Carl E. Van Horn. It's like attacking a mountain with a toothpick. You take a policy that was designed for the best economy that we've had since World War II, and you lay it up against the economy that is the worst since World War II. It just can't work. And it's not 
working. We have got to take this huge problem, this this monster of unemployment, and we have to take it seriously. Unfortunately, and, and I feel for the Democrats on this. I mean, you know, when I when I worked in the Senate, I, I have a sense of, of what honest, everyday politicians are like, it's left, right, or center. And here are the Democrats who know that we're in crisis, and they have their colleagues across the aisle who are acting in any, any way, but in, in a collegiate way, who basically, as Harry Reid and now Representative Grayson have said, want the economy to fail. They not only want Obama to fail, they want the economy to fail. They want to go back to the bread line. So what? So that they can prove that the Democrats are responsible for this sucky economy so we can elect the Republicans to do what? This is not only fatalistic, this is, I can't use the word un-American because I don't like the word and I don't think it fits. I just think it's plain shitty. Oh, I remember Judy Collins singing Send in the Clowns. It was such an easy time. Send in the clowns. Now yeah. it's mm-hmm. Send in the Drones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. War is going drone, drone, drone. I have a huge report on it. I, I got out of Tom Dispatch, which I'm not going to get into until I can like cut it down. But it's a great read. It's a scary great read. Ah, so drones are everywhere. But a video released at a recent biannual aerospace convention in Farnborough, UK, shows a laser mounted on a warship's gun turret obliterating a remotely piloted drone. So the drones have met their match, Dave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Built by Raytheon Missile Systems of Tucson, Arizona. Oh, the 32-kilowatt infrared laser is shown illuminating and heating the wingtip and then the underside of what looks like a radar-seeking drone until its remote pilot loses control and the aircraft catches fire and plummets into the ocean. Made in Tucson, could you? We could use this to heat up those illegals climbing that dang fence. What do you think? Is, 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 oh. Yeah. Well, in the first place, you know, I thought you were talking. I thought it was a Superman comic. I thought he was going to come and rescue the drone because can't you see? I mean, it's a big splash page with the with the with the silhouette of the navy ship and then you know silhouette of this great big cannon on this boat and then that flame thing coming out of it and there up in the sky like a jap air you know like a zero jap zero is the drone is the drone but and you just in in the next panel man i know it's just like the comic in the next panel it explodes or else superman comes down and Rescues it. There's no Superman this time. No, are they going to use this on the border? Well, uh, it's uh, if you know, it's closer and closer to lethal weaponry on the border. Okay, I I read somewhere that there are Nazis down there. For one thing, you know, the the American Nazis are still active. (laughs) They subscribe to, you know, they don't really hate anybody. They just think America should be white. Uh, non-Jewish, of course, uh, uh, Christian, and skinhead, and and uh, and uh, carry no a gun. They have no hair. I mean, it's a weird. It's a. It's, yeah, the border. Why not? Big laser. Though. Well, well, drones are in trouble because you know they used to think. Well, okay, we can shoot them down from land, which they've done, but. Uh, on at sea, things are too wavy and there's too much salt in the air. But Raytheon has done it. They've overcome the beam weakening problem of being at sea. Mm-hmm. Um, here's mm-hmm. the problem, though, right? <laughs> I, wish, I wish that would work on the entire American government. Yeah. The good news is that such lasers are allowed under the UN <laughs> protocol on blinding laser weapons oh. because they are not specifically designed <laughs> as blinding weapons alone. I just love the oh, way. Oh, man. One barrier to directed, uh, uh, directed energy battleships, however, could be that they're their energy requirements are enormous, Dave. Today's warships already have arrays of power-hungry systems, which use so much electricity that some strategists think many more types of military ships should, in the future, be nuclear. Now, that's good. Turn out more nuke ships to act as super generators to run the drone-killing laser rays to shoot down whose drones? (laughs) North Korea's? Their latest missile test, which was aimed at Japan and caused so much consternation, carried as its warhead a transistor radio playing the North Korean national anthem. Yes, Christ has risen. In this case, as Newsweek tells us, it's Florida Governor Charlie Chris. He did seem like a dead Paul walking, but Tea Party favorite Marco Rubio was thrashing him in the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate. Chris' 30-point lead had swung to a 30-point deficit. Funding was drying up as were endorsements. He's deader than the day before yesterday, former state GOP chair Tom Slade told the St. Petersburg Time in late April. Boy, that guy Slade really knows how to coin him. I don't think there's any way in the world he can rehabilitate himself. Always take heart when the GOP proclaims you dead. 
That's Bergman's rule, wisdom rule one during the midterms. Chris collegial centrism, the conventional wisdom held, had become anachronistic at a time when angry right-wing populism had overtaken his party. You see, Christ was the centrist a GOP governor of Florida who ran McCain's campaign in 2008. And how did Dang Fence return the favor? He abandoned him the minute the Tea Party started making ugly noises and turned to Rubio, who is part of the great wingnut brigade. I think he's like a, a lieutenant colonel amongst the wingnuts. Yeah, okay. So, Chris is dead, right? Yet, here we are, less than three months later, Chris, now running as an independent, because uh, they forced him out of the Republican Party, leads Rubio by almost five points, and he's ahead of the potential Democratic opponent by much more. The stunning reversal raises a possibility with wider implications. Quote, in this national environment of very polarized politics, as Daniel Smith, a political science professor at the University of Florida, voters may be interested in more moderate candidates. Hmm, I wonder. It's still a long way to November, of course. Rubio remains a formidable challenger, and given his announcement last week that he had raised a record-setting $4.5 million in the second quarter, a well-financed one, but, but through a mixture of deft maneuvering and plain good luck, Christ has somehow seized the momentum. During the spring legislative session, he vetoed two controversial bills pushed by overzealous Republican leaders, one dealing with teacher tenure, the other with abortion, thereby positioning himself as a bulwark against extremism. Yeah, he's now got the teachers on his side, a natural Democratic, you know, uh, con uh, constituency, and women. Women and teachers, hmm, that's enough to get you elected. And Christ has gotten a lot of positive press, as well as an uptick in approval ratings for his energetic response to the BP oil disaster that has gunked up Florida beaches with tar balls. In contrast to Rubio, who still supports offshore drilling. Drill, baby, drill. In fact, drill me right here in the heart. Christ has called the legislature to a special session this week to promote a constitutional ban against the practice. Chris's resurgence also stems in part from his shift back to where he's always seemed most comfortable, the political center. One of the things I learned from Charles Lindblom when I was studying in college, a great political scientist, is that things happen from the center and they happen incrementally. The left and the right can put pressure and mold the center, but it's the middle class, it's the center where, from whence progress springs, and Christ is comfortable there. That's where he's largely governed as the state's chief executive, pursuing a Republican agenda of low taxes and limited government, but also collaborating with Democrats on environmental issues and judicial appointments. The approach made him one of the most popular governors in the country and then the most hated Republican in Florida. Whoa, no, guess what? He collaborates with Democrats. A June Quinnipiac poll shows him garnering 51% of independents, 28% of Republicans, and 37% of Democrats. According to Thomas Eldon of SEA Polling and Strategic Design, who has studied the Florida electorate extensively, Chris backers mainly include moderate GOPers, alarmed about their party's move to the right, many of them Midwestern migrants who settled in Southwest Florida. While Christ has incurred the wrath of the far right, particularly the Tea Partiers, such opposition could work in his favor in some ways. Uh, conservatives are galvanized and may well turn out in force, but the way they've commandeered the GOP has also yielded a candidate, Rubio, who may appear too far from the center for mainstream voters. Yeah, he backs a flat tax, I think probably also a flat world, questions whether climate change is man-made. He is still questioning whether climate change is man-made. The guy is not a man. He is a machine. He's a clock that has wound down. And he supports legislation requiring doctors to perform ultrasounds before administering abortions. Randall Terrell, his dear friend, the ghost of the, you know, the murdering of the abortion doctors is just around the corner. If can't solve it one way, hey, solve it another. If Chris, if Chris ends up winning by staking out the middle ground, it will surely enliven the debate over just how polarized the American electorate really is. It's been a subject of heated argument amongst academics in recent years. Academics love to argue. It takes a long time and they get paid by the week. No one disputes that elective officials have become more polarized, but what about average voters? What about the little people, the leprechauns? In his recent book, The Disappearing Center, Alan Abramowitz, a professor at Emory University, argues that the public is more divided than ever, and since those who are more engaged tend to be more ideological, they're pushing the parties to their outer limits. Yet Stanford University professor Morris Fiorina, author of 
culture war with a with a question we know there's a culture war i guess he's asking which one or who's going to win he thinks that this idea is largely nonsense according to his analysis the electorate is no more polarized than in decades past voters have simply sorted themselves more neatly into political parties that are more ideological that's not such great news on the other hand like the founding fathers tell us factions keep keep us from tyranny republicans have shed northern liberals while democrats have lost southern conservatives and good riddance in fiorina's view, the citizenry is craving moderate candidates. Quote, there's a big underserved market out there, he says. Well, when Christ is elected, I'm positive he will be. He is going to caucus with the Democrats. Another Senate seat they're not winning, they're losing. They're going to take big major pipe in November. Hi, this is Sharzad Hackerthumb, and I play the teenage barista at the Useless Boy Cafe on Tipping Point, Radio Free Oz's new seaside soap opera. I listen to Radio Free Oz because I pick up the occasional useful Yiddish term. I know that the executives at Goldman Sachs of Crap are not simply thieves and criminals, they're mumsers and tumblers. John Bomer isn't just a witless hand puppet, he's a schmendrick. And the vice principal at my middle school is a schmohawk. When one of the stuck-up girls in my class gave me grief, I told her to stop being such a schmageggy. She said I was putting a curse on her. Maybe I was. This is Sharzad Hackerthumb, and you've got Oz in your ears. There's been a lot of back and forth about the denying of extended benefits to the unemployed. And the... Left wing is really, really unhappy. Representative Grayson said, may God have pity on you, turning to his so-called colleagues in the GOP. And the GOP is saying it's runaway government and you're going to have to somehow shore up the deficits that this kind of giving to these lazy people is what they're basically saying. And some have said, and some have referred to them as stray animals. It's gotten pretty bad. But that isn't really the voice that people are going to listen to. They're going to listen to Barack Obama. Because he is the man in the middle. And it's from the middle that wisdom comes in all of these issues sooner or later. President Obama had some harsh words today for the Republicans who keep blocking unemployment benefits in the Senate, calling them a partisan minority that didn't have any problem spending hundreds of billions of dollars for tax breaks for the wealthiest Americans, but is now blocking relief for the middle class. Remember, this is the president that really doesn't want to have to take anybody on in these kind of harsh terms. But he has to, because he's dealing with a bunch of wicked obstructionists. Uh, so I say, go get him, Barack. You get lucky, and the unemployed will have just enough energy left to vote in November. Obama first pointed out that Republicans voted to extend the benefits under George W. Bush. Quote, for a long time, there's been a tradition under both Democratic and Republican presidents to offer relief to the unemployed. Quite true. But now, he said, these benefits are in jeopardy. And after years of championing policies that turned a record surplus into a massive deficit, that's the GOP here, the same people who didn't have any problem spending hundreds of billions of dollars for tax breaks for the wealthiest Americans are now saying we shouldn't offer relief to middle-class Americans. And trust me, middle-class Americans, out of work, in work, worrying about being out of work, they are never going to vote GOP again. Obama continued that over the past few years, a majority of senators have tried not once, not twice, but three times, remember, three times is lucky, to extend emergency relief on a temporary basis, but that each time a partisan minority in the Senate has used parliamentary maneuvers to block a vote denying millions of people who are out of work much-needed relief. Yeah, that attitude, I think, reflects a lack of faith in the American people, Obama said. They're not looking for a handout. It's time to do what's right, he said, not for the next election, but for the middle class. Well, this is the death knell of the GOP. The xenophobes lost them the Hispanic vote. The homophobes lost them the gay vote. The Randall Terrells lost them the woman's vote. And now the heartless Calvinists among them have lost them the unemployed middle class. Bye-bye. Hello. Hello, we're, we're glad, glad you made it. it. Welcome, Welcome to, to the future. Ah, 
Well, here's the latest, Uncle Pete, on, Uh-oh. on Here the it subject comes. of terrorism and torture and, and the legal justification for whatever it is you want to do, okay? Uh, a former Bush Justice Department wait official. A minute, that, wait a minute. Bush yes. and justice in the same sentence? I'm sorry. It's like Army intelligence. I know. Right. I know. Anyway, a guy who approved brutal interrogation methods because somebody gave him the right to do it. Uh, by CIA, blah, 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 told Congress that he never authorized several other rough treatments. Not I wanted you to choke him and kick him and send the dogs on him, but I never said you could <laughs> shackle them for a long time to the ceiling and beat them. No, I never said that. I didn't, I didn't think didn't of it that. if even it told me. Closed door testimony, I guess, for the House Judiciary Committee. You know well, why they closed the door? <laughs> because of the stink. Ooh, Ooh. Smells all the way to here. He, um, uh, Judge J.S. Bybee said the CIA never sought approval for some practices detainees later said had been used on them. Oh. Mm, Finger pointing where in that sentence. The ones that have fingers left. Right. Including dousing them with cold water to keep them awake and forcing them (laughs) to wear diapers or or soil themselves. (laughs) Those techniques were not authorized, he said. But Judge Bybee strongly defended the legal advice he did provide to the CIA in 2002 that waterboarding, wall slamming, and other methods used by the CIA were lawful. Here's the quote from Judge Bybee. I can hardly wait. Hit me, Bybee. We took a muscular view of presidential authority. Uh Uh-oh. We were offering a bottom line to a client who wanted to know what he could do and what he couldn't do. I wasn't running a debating society, and I wasn't running a law school. Oh, my. Oh, That's my. Judge Bybee. But he feels bad. He does feel bad about something. And I'm glad that he does feel bad about something, even though he's proud of his opinions and, and thought they were very carefully written. Thank you. And um, how about, you think, maybe an A-, minus, not B+, plus? I think, on that carefully written. Anyway... Here's his last quote. Okay, Judge Bybee, say it. I have regrets because of the notoriety this has brought brought on me. It has imposed enormous pressures on me, both professionally and personally. It has had an impact on my family, and I regret that as a result of my government service that that kind of attention has been visited on me and my family. There Torturing me! Well, here's some interesting information from Gallup. They've become a, a rather interesting site, uh, gallup.com. Their polls are good, and their uh, the text about it's pretty good also. This says, Democrats jump into six-point lead on generic ballot. This is dated July 19th. It says, in the same week that the U.S. Senate passed a major financial reform bill touted as uh, reigning in Wall Street. Democrats pulled ahead of Republicans 49% to 43% in voters' generic ballot preferences for the 2010 congressional elections. And I'm looking at the chart here. It starts back in like, oh, it must be, oh, like just before April of 10. And you've got like going back and forth between uh, 47% want the Democrats, 44% want the Republicans. And at one point in June, right at the end of May, in the middle of June, the uh, Republicans had a 49 to 43 spread and 49 to 44. And since then... They've just leveled out and taken themselves a nice, serious nosedive. So where they had, at one point, a six-point lead, they now have a six-point deficit. That's a nice 12-point drop. Well, will it last? Let's just see what the uh, people here have to say about that. They say the... uh, uh, the Democrats' six-point advantage in Gallup Daily interviewing from July 12th to the 18th represents the first statistically significant lead for that party's candidate since Gallup began tracking uh, this measure early in March. 51% of the Republicans saying they're very enthusiastic about the voting this fall is up from 40% the week prior and is the highest since early April. So they're, you know, they're really hot to vote because they're worried about health care reform and immigration and things like that. 
Whether the Democrats, Democrats' edge is sustainable remains to be seen. Republicans held a four-pointer better lead over Democrats in three Gallup weekly averages thus far this year, but in each case, the gap narrowed or collapsed to a tie the following week. So uh, the GOP advantage amongst generic battling may be indeed a phantom lead. With Republicans and Democrats' support for their own party's candidates holding steady in the low 90s this past week, independents are primarily responsible for the Democrats' improved positioning. Ah, independents, the middle. We rule from the middle. 39% of independents favor the Democratic candidate in their district, up from 34%, 5% rise, although slightly more, 43% still favor the Republican. So you've got a Republican enthusiasm and spiking, and yet the generic ballot is going the way of the Democrats. It's going to be a very interesting midterm election. The government's your friend, you see. That's what I have to say, or they will bury me. Don't you try to criticize, and don't you ever try to talk about their lies. I don't know what you've been told, but last time I checked, we had the right to say the things we mean and disagree and not have to face the guillotine. But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution. Patriot Act is the riot act with the PAT. What the really means is that they're watching you and that they're really watching me. And anyone who disagrees is sure to lose their liberties. A patriot has got to keep his mouth shut. But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution. King and his army wing, they are hell-bent on the conquest Our enemies on bended knees, they're gonna see it always soon Because the freedom that they steal from us, they try to export overseas And now our former enemies are free to live a life of tyranny the same as you or me And it's a crime to speak your mind And it's a crime, whoa If you heard that plate is gonna Guilty or not, because you stick them in a cell and they are soon forgotten And they're out of sight and out of mind and out of luck But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution Before you choose a side to fight, forget about who's wrong or right If you like your neck, you best as heck start rooting for the winner This brave new world is knocking at your door, and you better let it in The Constitution's evolution never made a contribution to the revolutionary man It's a crime to speak your mind And it's a crime Heard that 
This article in the Huffington Post really um, amplifies and supports some of the discussions that I had with uh, Daniel Ellsberg, which is being featured on Oz uh, as a series of pieces. And this says the U.S. military buildup in Kandahar is likely to further strengthen the hold of the Taliban over the vital southern Afghanistan city, a highly respected security organization said in a bleak report warning of record Taliban violence and rising civilian deaths across the country. The report by the Afghanistan NGO Security Office, which monitors trends in violence on behalf of aid organizations, said NATO's counterinsurgency strategy was not showing any signs of succeeding amid rising violence, the unchecked establishment of local militias, and a huge increase in attacks on private development workers across the country. That's part of the new uh, Taliban strategy, which is if you kill the NGO workers, uh, you know, you make a lot more bad press at home. You scare a lot more people when your sons and daughters that you sent out to you know, doctors without borders or whatever come back in a casket. Soldiers, that's one of the deals. That's part of the risk, but not when you go out to help build a nation. It revealed that June marked a record for Taliban attacks, up 51% of the previous year to 1,319 operations. And at the same time, the number of civilians killed by both sides of the conflict rose by 23%, despite the efforts of NATO forces to avoid killing innocent bystanders. And that was under McChrystal's rules of engagement. Petraeus wants to loosen them, so watch out below. The organization also said attacks on private development organizations working on projects designed to win the support of ordinary Afghans had shot up, with more than 30 workers killed in the first three months of the year. I'd think twice before I took that job. We do not support the counterinsurgency perspective that this constitutes things getting worse before they get better, but rather see it as being consistent with the five-year trend of things just getting worse, the report said. So it's not like it's dark, but it's going to get lighter. No, it's just going to get darker. NATO said it had intercepted a letter from Taliban leader Mullah Omar, which ordered fighters to kill any Afghan working for foreign forces. A huge number of local nationals are employed as interpreters and logistic workers, and they're being shot left and right. In southern Afghanistan, insurgents staged a jailbreak by smuggling a bomb inside a prison, allowing 11 inmates to escape in the province of Farah. And in Kandahar, a roadside bomb exploded near the city's hospital, killing two police officers and a civilian. NATO also said that one of its soldiers from an unidentified country was killed by a roadside bomb. Well, with bombings a near daily occurrence in the South, the Anzo report also reflected the grave doubts held by most Afghan experts that NATO's concentrations of forces in southern Afghanistan can possibly work. It's another report of failure. I will bring many of these reports to Radio Free Oz. Not that I'm hiding all the reports that say, this is a winner, this is a go, this is a win-win. I can't find any. I'm reading you the Eikenberry cables. I'm reading you things here from Anzo. I'm reading reports from the guy that's the chairman of the Council of Foreign Relations, which is the dead center of the establishment, saying, it's time to go. It isn't working. Well, here's a good one from the business pages, Pete. It seems that small businesses are ganging up to go after offshore tax havens. Uh -huh. The campaign is called Business and Investors Against Tax Haven Abuse. That's the B-I-A-T-H-A. -A. Not that much of an acronym there. Yeah. Is backed by Senator Carl Levin, Democrat of I Michigan. I like him. Yeah, I like him a lot. Who in recent years has investigated offshore tax havens, and he's, so he's got a vested interest in investigating them. Right. All right. Senator Levin plans to announce the campaign. Uh, with its supporters, a coalition of three nonprofit groups, and you'll love this. This is this is so Soviet, I can't believe it. The American Sustainable Business Council, Achtung. the Business for Shared Prosperity and Wealth for the Common. Hey, wait a minute, no, that's 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 Chinese. Now I have to pause. Uh, the American Business for Shared Prosperity. That's one of them, and. Wealth for the common good is the other, but it's really, it's really Chinese. If you're the American Sustainable Business Council, business for shared prosperity and wealth, that's always North Korean. Inc. Yeah, it is. Yeah, <clears> that's <throat> probably what they're playing on that warhead that was headed towards uh, Japan. <laughs> I painted on it, right? Okay. Well, the report calls for laws. Now, if you if you like new laws, you'll love these. Okay, these are really good laws that would block transfers of intellectual property designed to evade taxes. 
Mm-hmm. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do not send Mickey Mouse offshore here in big Do trouble, not. okay? I know. I'm offshore. I'm uh, offshore. I'm <laughs> offshore. Band Shell Corporations. Band Shell, just to begin with. Band Shell Corporations that earn profits offshore, even when a corporation's management team is based in the United States. Yeah, guys. Well, we have to meet, don't we? Yes, this is corporate. All right. And meanwhile, in the Bahamas, we're doing, we're making milk. Uh, okay, repeal a rule that allows American corporations to reduce or eliminate their United States tax bills. Oh, the tax code. If 80% of their business takes place overseas. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I talked recently with a guy that is a, a, a financier and uh, works in England, but is uh, his business is on, or he works for a business on the Isle of Jersey, which is a tax mm-hmm. haven. Tax I, haven there. I said, they really get away with murder. He said, no, Peter, he said, that's all ending, all over. He said, governments know what there's tax money there. They want the money. It's not anywhere near as easy as it used to be. So I'm glad that Carl Levin is doing this, but I think it's becoming less and less of an issue simply because- there's money there. There's money for the government. The common wheel wants the money, so the common wheel is turning ever so slowly. Well, my congratulations to the American Sustainable Business Council business for shared prosperity and wealth for the common good. And may, may your flag ever wave. If I were headlining this story for the Wall Street Journal, I would call it such a deal. In one of the largest penalties in Wall Street history, Goldman Sachs Group Incorporated, I like to call them Goldman Sachs of crap, agreed to pay $550 million to settle civil charges that had duped clients by selling mortgage securities that were secretly designed by a hedge fund firm to cash in on the housing market's collapse. The agreement with the Securities and Exchange Commission ends a showdown that had deeply shaken America's most powerful financial firm at a cost that outside observers deemed a bargain. What a bargain. Half a billion. Ah, we make it in a day. Lloyd Blankfein, chairman and chief executive officer of Goldman Sachs Goldman, conceded it made a mistake by not disclosing the role of Paulson and Company to investors for a deal dubbed Abacus 2007 AC1. Huh, chairman and chief executive, chief devil, sorry, devil's wrong, chief demon. The firm vowed to toughen oversight of mortgage securities, certain marketing materials, and employees who create or pitch uh, such securities. Yet Goldman walked away with several victories that raised questions about the strength of the SEC's case. The company wasn't forced to sacrifice any top executives, including Chief Executive Lloyd C. Blackfine, as some executives had feared. The charges it agreed to won't weaken its profits or standing as Wall Street's mightiest firm. The record-setting penalty is equivalent to just 14 days of profit at Goldman in the first quarter. These guys got away with murder. This is a steal, said Michael Driscoll, a senior managing director at firms Bear Stearns and Company before that firm collapsed in 2007. Analysts had expected Goldman to pay at least a billion as part of the deal. Oh, no, for you, 550 million. Goldman's shares surged late in the day on the expectation of the pact and continued to rally in after-hours trading. The stock is up over 9%. So the stock is up 9% in a couple of days. And guess what? You only have to pay 14 days worth of profits out of one quarter, and your chief demons get to keep their window offices. I mean, what sort of a deal is this? Remember, it was Joe Kennedy who started the SEC, and I think his ghost still reigns. No, they don't bite. And, uh, and, (laughs) but then, as you know, chinchillas or... Are mutated chinchillas like these, the blue mutants we call them. Is that because of their peculiar uh, coloration, Brad, that makes them so rare? Uh, no, they were first crossbred or introduced, as we say, by Alistair Blue, a munitions, ex- a mutations expert, who's been into the raising of these little sweethearts. Oh, oh careful there! Is he getting? Is he getting away? Uh, that's all right. We got a lot more of them, and they do that, and that's part of the fun of raising them. And they're very clean, clean animals. I wouldn't ask about that. They're very clean. And if they do mess, as we refer to it, they'll do it in their little cages, and it doesn't make any difference. And they dig a little hole for it. Also. <laughs> Is that uh, what this one's doing here? Can we, can we get a close-up no. of that? No, no. No, this one's just trying to get away. 
Uh, that, that's his mate over there. That's the one they're trying to catch. Well, look at that. They just caught it. Uh, oh, that's... Our floor manager just told me they stepped uh, on it. That, that's, a, that's a female. That's a squirrel, as we say. Those bright colors around the snout. Nose rings, we call them. They differentiate between them. And, of course, you just cover them up with this nair guard and they won't breed. They can't breathe? No, 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 they can't breed. <laughs> There's one crawling up my leg. But uh, seriously, Brad, Ken, we want them to breed as much as possible, and this guard is only used, of course, when you're away on vacation, you know, and it becomes inconvenient for them to... Uh, 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 Brad, now, how could we... Let's go over to that demonstration. Oh, you told sure. Me to go well, I'm going to show you how absolutely trouble-free these little animals are. Back here. If, if you have kids like I know I have, you'll want to watch this very carefully now. Uh, we got a big close-up right there of the little... <laughs> if you just stay still here. Yep. <laughs> now, I'm... I'm going to put out this lighted cigarette on this chinchilla now. There. Now, you, see, you can see I'm just letting it burn there. It doesn't harm the coat at all. Oh, that's, a, that's amazing. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, how's... how's it's still smoking there. Yes. Uh -huh. Well, how's, how, is this, uh, how is this possible, Ken? Well, Brad, <clears throat> this chinchilla is entirely synthetic. That's that's fantastic. And with these little fellas raised in your spare time in the playhouse or the garage or the slaves' quarters, you'll be making hay while the sun shines and at midnight, too, with mutant well, blue. thank you. Thank you, Brad. And you two little... What's his name? Doesn't have a name. They're all his name. Oh, well, thank you. Just a moment. We'll tell you the numbers to call. In which Pence is not the lucky penny. The unsavory task of explaining why Americans apparently can't afford to help the unemployed but can't afford tax cuts for the rich fell to Representative Mike Pence. Republicans, he said, me included, have supported numerous extensions of unemployment benefits and were anxious to do so again, the Indiana Republican told interviewer Chris Wallace on Fox News. The deficit this year is a trillion dollars for the second year in a row. The American people have had it with runaway federal spending, deficits of debt, and they want to see men and women in Washington, D.C. make the hard choices. Wrong, Mike. Recent polls released reveal that despite anxiety about spending, registered voters actually favor helping the unemployed even if it adds to the deficit. Nevertheless, extended unemployment benefits for the long-term jobless lapsed at the beginning of June, as we all know, because Republicans in the Senate, joined by that son-of-a-blue-dog Ben Nelson, insisted that the $33 billion cost of reauthorizing the benefits not be added to the deficit, though some deficit hawks actually don't consider stiffing the jobless a smart way to reduce the deficit to begin with. Now, we're not going to, like, uh, demobilize a couple of Ohio-class Triton subs whose extraordinary deficit death-dealing power we no longer need. We're not going to, like, you know, can a couple of B1s, you know, which are of no use whatsoever. We aren't going to take seven or eight bases away in countries that hate us anyway that are of no military value. No, we're going to stiff the unemployed. Fox's Wallace said he understood the Republicans' argument that the unemployment benefits be paid for, but why not also pay for a reauthorization of the tax cuts, which will cost, ready, $678 billion. That's 6.78 years in Afghanistan. The reality is that as you study, this is Mike Pence trying to talk, when President Kennedy cut marginal tax rates, when Ronald Reagan cut marginal tax rates, when President Bush imposed those tax cuts, they actually generated economic growth. They expanded the economy. They expand tax revenue, Pence said. Well, that's total BS, Mike. But hey, who's listening? Extra, extra. Here's a news break for you, Pete. Yes, sirree, a biography of Sarah Palin for young readers that was scheduled for a fall publication has been postponed. Extra, extra. Zondervan, a Christian publisher that is part of HarperCollins, told the AP that October is not, quote, an optimal time for the book to come out. A new publication date was not announced. The book Speaking Up by Kim Washburn is part of a series of biographies for teens. Ms. Washburn told the AP she'd been informed that the book was on hold indefinitely and that she was surprised. Well, what they did is they, they did a fact check on it and there was nothing left. <laughs> there was no... no. Oh, poof, just like that, the entire thing disappeared. You betcha. 
It seems that their best idea is no idea at all. Sometime after Labor Day, House Minority Leader John the Suntan Bomer plans to unveil a blueprint of what Republicans will do if they take back control of the chamber. Shudder, shudder. He promises it will be a full plate of policy proposals that will give voters a clear sense of how they would govern. He probably got the idea from the full plate of snacks at the bar that he hit at 6 o'clock just in time to make happy hour. But will Republicans actually want to run on those ideas or any ideas at all? Behind the scenes, men are being urged to ignore the leaders and do just the opposite, avoid issues at all costs. Some of the party's most influential political consultants are quietly counseling their clients to stay on the offensive for the November midterm elections and steer clear of taking stands on substance that might give Democrat opponents material for a counterattack. Don't say anything. Don't think anything. Just be rude and strident and stupid. No sweat. The smart political approach would be to make the election about the Democrats, said Neil Newhouse of the powerful Republican polling firm Public Opinion Strategies, which is advising more than 50 House and Senate candidates. I'm glad he is, because I think it's terrible advice. I really do. I think it's all part of the, let's destroy ourselves as quickly as we can. In terms of our individual campaigns, I don't think it does a great deal of good to engage in a debate over the Republicans' own agenda because we don't have one. Others are skeptical that any Republican policy proposals will have much of an impact. They really still have to have a sharp contrast with the Democrats, said John McLaughlin, another leading Republican pollster, whose firm uh, counts both the House and Senate campaign committees among its clients, those amongst the Republicans who can still count. They really need to drive that home before people will be willing to listen to what Republicans stand for. One who does uh, beg to differ is the architect of the latest GOP takeover of the House, and that's what he did, and he did it successfully. He is a brilliant marketeer. Consultants, in my opinion, are stupid, former Speaker Newt Gingrich said in an interview. The least idea-oriented, most mindless campaign of simplistic slogans is a mindless idea. You go, Newt. Toot, toot, toot. Ah, the sands of time, grain at a time, but we're coming near the end of the show. The hourglass is almost empty to be filled again tomorrow. Oh, now down at the bottom of the hourglass. It's yeah. much more comfortable here. I have to move out of the way of the falling, uh, falling uh, sand. sand but uh, before we bury ourselves in the sands of time and memory, give us a little tang. Okay? All right. Well, I had to, I had to move uh, a little ahead with Lee Poe into August because I liked this so much. Well, coming up. Coming okay, up. Okay, it's coming. Sixth moon, August. Cutting raw silk. Splitting flecked bamboo. We wear frosted robes and lie on mats as cool as jade. A flaming mirror opens in the east. A glowing cartwheel climbs across the sky. The scarlet emperor comes, riding his roaring dragon. Wow, man. I mean, nowadays it's just, you know, you go up on the web and it says, it's sunrise at 6.07. These guys really welcomed the day. They lived a fuller life, I think. I have a feeling they not only wrote these every day, but they painted a little picture, too, and, yeah. and then went walking around and got drunk. And they drank a lot, came back did. and did it again. They did. Well, don't you do it. Not if you're driving, anyway. Oh, ho, ho, Radio Free Oz. Who makes it possible? Well, it's the Oz team. Peter Bergman, your host, say moi. David Osman, your co-host, say toi. Go Yo. ahead. He's going to say toi. No, I won't. No, you won't. Okay, John Cummings is ones and zeros. Phil Fountain's the Oz design group. Honcho. Tom Gidwell will make sure the web is up there and running. Chaz Glass does the numbers. Dave Maloney does all the recording, and he does it so well. Bill McIntyre is our Uber producer, and Scott Wilde says, social media, that's where it be. And we be where you be tomorrow on Radio Free Ops.